Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. She is an amazing anchor, CNN author of Where the Children Take Us, which is a journey unto itself. Let me welcome to the show for the first time, Zane Asher. Welcome. Hi. Hey, hey, Karen. How's it going? It is going super well. Uh, Thank you for coming through. Uh, You're welcome. Very excited to be here. Listen, we, you know, we, we brought you on before all of this stuff was going on in the world. So we can't not talk about that. Um, I know, I think you, you're raising children. Are you raising children? Um, I have two kids. That's what I thought. And, you know, as I, I was asking this question of parents, like how are, is anyone considering now homeschooling, taking their kids out of school? Like, has this shifted and changed you know, that whole process. And I just want, want to ask you that as well. You know, it's really hard because I grew up in the UK and um, this is just something that is just not even a consideration. You know, the idea that you can drop your child off to school one day and never see them again. That just, do- I mean, listen, we've had, you know, there was one sort of big mass shooting uh, when I was growing up, when I was a kid in England, it happened actually in Scotland at a school called, or in a town called Dunblane. And that was a really famous one. And after that, there were so many changes that happened. And in England already, it's very, very hard to get a weapon. It's very hard. Um, And so it's just a completely different culture. And so for me, when Sandy Hook happened, it was, and not just Sandy Hook, really for me, every school shooting that has ever happened since I've lived in this country. Um, It's just, it's so, not only is it shocking and awful, but the fact, if I'm honest, that nothing changes is the most heartbreaking of all, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Especially coming from a country where that, that concept just doesn't even exist. The idea of somebody going into a school and, and committing such a heinous act isn't really an option, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was heartbreaking, heartbroken when I saw what happened on the news this week. Your, your book, <clears throat> where the children take us, um, it, it tells the story of your mom and her fight to raise four children. Uh, talk a little bit about that too, because we were, we were talking about loss. One of the teachers, uh, married 24 years, her husband mm-hmm. had a massive heart attack and died today in the wake of this. I don't know what that kind of loss feels like to have to raise four children on your own, but tell us a little bit about your mom's journey and what inspired you to write this book. Yeah. So um, I started writing this book, really the proposal when I turned about 36 years old, which is exactly how old my mother was when she got um, pretty much the worst phone call that any human being could really ever get. Um, my mom was in the kitchen, well, between the living room and the kitchen, she was sort of pacing back and forth. It was September, 1988. And my mom was waiting for my dad to call her because my dad and my brother were on this father-son road trip. And my mother was expecting my dad to call and say, um, listen, we've just landed at the airport in London, come and pick us up. And the call never came, the call, never came. My mom waited and waited and waited and waited and waited for hours. And then suddenly at around 6.30 in the evening, the phone rings. My mom rushes to pick it up, but 
it's actually not my dad. It's an extended relative in Nigeria, which is where we're originally from. It's where the road trip was taking place. And the voice simply says to my mom, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead and we don't know which one. And, you know, in that moment, to this day, my mom describes it as an emotional earthquake. Everything stops. You know, she's unable to think, unable to breathe. She's catatonic. Um, she jumps on the next flight um, to Nigeria. And basically, my dad and my brother were traveling from a town called Enugu, which is sort of like quite rural. Um, it's a rural town in sort of southeastern Nigeria. And they were going to a place called Lagos, which is like the New York of Nigeria. And it's a six hour journey. And then um, somewhere along that, that sort of freeway, that stretch, the driver, the person driving them swerved into the opposite lane to sort of cut around traffic. And as the car went round a bend, it was crushed by a tractor trailer that was speeding. And um, everybody in the car was killed instantly, apart from one person in the back seat where my dad and my brother were sitting. Mm. And so um, that's why there was so much confusion about who it was. So, you know, it turned out that it was my dad who had passed away. And, um, you know, my parents were really the loves of each other's lives. You know, my mom met my dad when she was 14. You know, he was the only guy that she ever really knew, ever really kissed, ever really held hands with. And when my mother got that phone call, she was actually pregnant at the time as well. She had three kids and she was pregnant with her fourth child. And so um, we all go back to London after the funeral and my mother isn't really able to be present for us. She is in such a state of mourning and grieving. She simply would spend most of her days with the bedroom door closed and we would just hear the sounds of like cries and screams on the other side of the door. And, you know, she would make sure once a day that we had food to eat and then she would just go back to her bedroom and lock herself in for the rest of the day. And so for a long time, um, we didn't really have a dad or a mom, to be honest. And my eldest brother got kicked out of school because suddenly not having a father figure in his life, you know, he begins to rebel and he looks for acceptance in the wrong places. He starts hanging out on the streets with the wrong crowd, etc. And um, in that moment when my, my brother got expelled, it was a big wake up call for my mother because she's an immigrant. She's an immigrant from Africa. And really like many immigrants, you move to the UK or America or wherever, pretty much for your children to get a better, better education. That's basically the main reason for a lot of immigrants. And so to have, you know, uh, her husband be killed in that way and then, you know, her son getting kicked out of school, um, it was a big wake up call for her. And that's when she began rolling up her sleeves. And one of the questions I've gotten asked the most my entire life is how on earth did your mother do it? How did your mother, obviously this African immigrant who was a single mother, a widow, you know, living in a neighborhood that was beset by poverty and crime, how on earth did she grow, go through all of that and still manage to raise you, a CNN anchor, your brother, an Oscar nominated actor. My brother was nominated for 12 Years a Slave. My sister, a doctor, my oldest brother, a very successful entrepreneur. How on earth did she do that? Mm. And so when I had kids, I began to sort of really think, wow, gosh, you know, I cannot even imagine, I, I cannot even imagine um, getting a phone call like that. And then becoming a single mother with three kids on top of that being pregnant. You know, my mother was four months pregnant at the time and having to 
you know, fight. And my mother really carried us on her back and fought with every ounce of her being to give us a better life. And she used really unique and I would say quite genius and original parenting strategies that I lay out in the book. And every chapter has one of these sort of different strategies that I hope, you know, gives people hope. I want to dive into that. We're talking with Zane Asher, where the children take us. Your mom was a pharmacist. Your mom was a pharmacist. Your dad was a doctor. So we're not talking about people who don't understand science and how to find solutions because the scientific brain, the mind, that is something unto itself. That's very interesting. I've never heard anyone phrase it like that, but yes. Okay. I think, I think you're, you're right to an extent for sure. Um, and that brother's uh, Chiwetel uh, Ejiofor, who is in right now, uh, the man who was the man who came to earth, the man that I'm, I've been watching it with, what is it? The man who fell to earth. The man who fell to, oh my God, with uh, Naomi, I, oh, I can't remember. Right. Thank you. That, <laughs> that series is freaking amazing. He was the little boy that was in the car or the, the young man that was in the car with your father um mm-hmm. in that accident and and I've actually talked with him about it so I've had the pleasure of meeting him in person um that your mother was able to not just carry on give birth to you to him to uh another another sibling who's a doctor another mm-hmm. sibling who is an, uh, a successful entrepreneur there is a blueprint there we talk about the tiger mom but this this feels even more um um, not amazing, but it's rooted in African culture. So it, it feel, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Zane? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, is that it's interesting because when I sort of talk to other Nigerians about some of these strategies, a lot of them are somewhat well-known, not all, but somewhat well-known within Nigerian culture. Um, but to the Western culture, I think a lot of them are quite new. So for example, one of the things that my mother did was you know, we all struggled in school at different times, especially just given the chaos at home, you know, it makes sense. So one of the things my mother did for me, for example, was um, she went to my teachers and asked for my school syllabus for the entire year to figure out what I was gonna be learning in school in say a month or two months or three months from then. And she would teach it to me at home beforehand. So if she figured out that, okay, based on this syllabus, you're gonna be learning your times tables. You know, I was seven, eight years old at the time. um, That she, she would teach it to me well before I learned it in school. So that by the time it came up in school, I mastered it. I'd already mastered it. I already knew it inside and out. And so that meant that the teachers began to treat me differently. They began to treat me, to be honest, with a lot, a lot more, um, appreciation and they, I felt that they may not have taken me seriously in the same way before, even as a young child. But after that, I became a role model for some of the other kids. And I began, school began to become a place where even as a kid, I received a lot of praise, a lot of accolades, a lot of acclaim. Um, and so it was just remarkable how that you know, how that changed for me. Folk, if you have questions, 866-801-8255 or comment. Zane Asher is here. The book is Where the Children Take Us, and it is a powerful um, story. It's, it's memoir-esque, but it's more blueprint, too. Sina Gaznavi is here as well. We're having a blueprint type of conversation. Go ahead, Sina. I, I was yeah, talking. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, you you got some time. In it. It's great. Zane, it's so good to be chatting with you. You know, it seems like there's an amazing story of your mother overcoming this this grief and and this challenge. But how did you deal as a young person with this loss? What was that experience like? Because we see with this recent shooting that young people are in a place of grief and experiencing loss. What was that like for you? How did you deal with it? And how does it still stay with you? My gosh, I have so many, so much to say on this. So when my dad died, I was five years old. So I really didn't really know what was going on um, to the point where I remember hearing people say that he died but I don't, I just didn't understand why he wasn't home to play with me. Mm. It was sort of like, yeah, I get that he's dead, but why isn't he home to play with me? That's how my five-year-old brain was trying to sort of rationalize it. Um, so I really didn't mourn my dad, truly mourn him until I was like 13 years old. That's when I realized, my gosh, like I actually don't have a father and he died in this really horrific way. Um, as an adult, you know, I have gone through really pretty much the past sort of 20 years or so um, since I was a teenager in this constant state of just low level grief, meaning that mm. anytime anyone mentions my dad or it could be something as simple as somebody saying, oh, um, where, where do your parents live? Plural, not knowing that I only have my mother left. And I would have, to, I would answer them, but then I would excuse myself and go to the bathroom and cry, you know, for a little bit. Or somebody might say, especially if it's, um, you know, a girl might say, oh, you know, I'm having lunch with my dad. And that would also be a trigger because I've never known what it's like to have lunch with my dad. Um, and so really it's just this sort of low lying, low level sort of constant grief. I will say that having written this book, I now feel as though this sort of hole that I've been trying to fill with constantly asking people who knew my dad about him and what was he like and, you know, constantly sort of crying about him. I now feel that that trauma has been somewhat healed, I would say. I mean, writing this book, it, I always say that it feels as though my entire life searching for my dad and through this book, I finally found him. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it's, I was going to ask if this was this was like catharsis finally for you to actually go through the experience of writing it and researching it, now publishing it. But now, even now, I mean, you know, you've done uh, another show that I produced, Change of the Trajectory, and you had to share the story. It must be, it can't be easy sharing the story while you're trying to talk about this book as well. No, it's really, um, I would say that the hardest part is really the first chapter Mm. Um, because the first chapter of the book is where I talk about my dad and what happened and that phone call that my mother got, that is the hardest part. Um, it was the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do was narrate the audiobook oh. and actually speak those words aloud. You know, when you, when you read an audiobook, it's like literally seven hours a day, um, for like four days, you know, and the first day was so difficult because what happens is you know, if you stumble, they make you do the line again. Course, so there yeah. might be a line where I talk about, let's say my dad being buried. And if I stumble, I have to say the line over and over and over again. And it is the most heart wrench. Afterwards, after the first chapter, I was like, gosh, I wish I'd had an actress do this. This is so hard. Um, but the, honestly, the rest of the book is so hopeful. 
And the rest of the book with all the different sort of parenting lessons that my mother implemented in terms of how she raised us is so hopeful. That's the part I get excited talking about. Yeah. And can you give us an example of those? I mean, my mom made me like memorize like books of vocabulary words as an Iranian immigrant. And like I learned the times (laughs) tables in third grade. And I don't know if that helped me too much, but I'd love to hear the tips that maybe your mom, your mom did. So I can maybe help my kid and and not, uh, not make my kids learn the times tables. So (laughs) funny. Yeah. So one of the things my mother did is she came up with this thing that she referred to as the eight hour rule. So she would make us divide our days um, into three equal parts. So obviously there's 24 hours in a day, three parts of eight hours each. And she would say to us, right, eight hours to be spent sleeping, eight hours to be spent in school. And the last eight hours of your day should be spent working towards your dreams. Because her philosophy was that, listen, everybody in the world generally sleeps for eight hours. Everybody in the world, you know, especially are lucky enough to just have one job, they generally will go to work for eight or nine hours or school. So really the only thing that can set you apart in this life is how you spend the last eight hours of your day. That is it. That is what, you know, you show me anybody who's successful, I will show you somebody who spends the last eight hours of their day very, very wisely. And that that really stayed with me in terms of how I manage my time, even to this day. And, um, you know, when it came to sort of, getting a job at CLN and, you know, I went, I went to, you know, Oxford and Columbia, that, that eight hour rule was always in the back of my mind. We're talking with Zane Asher, author of where the children take us, um, navigating grief. You know, we, we talk a lot on the show about mental health and that we need it. Healing is important. Going through trauma. Many of us have it both epigenetically and in real life. I can't think of anything more traumatic than to lose a parent at such a young age. Did you seek professional help? How did you get through it? How, or have you gotten through it? Or do you ever get through it? Um, I didn't, when I was younger, seek professional help. My mother didn't either. Um, and, you know, I think that mental health and grief and um, sort of psychological healing isn't something that I can't speak for all immigrants, but certainly West African immigrants do not talk enough about. And so actually for my mother um, doing this interview for the book, because obviously I had to interview her for the book. She has buried the emotions of what happened to my dad so much so that when I was interviewing her, she would set time limits on our conversation. She could only talk to me for 10 minutes at a time. And so, you know, I would have 10 minutes to talk about what happened that day in September when she got that phone call and we would have to stop after 10 minutes and then continue the next day because she could not bring herself to really, really go so deep into um, all of those emotions in one sitting. And, you know, there are parts of my mother's story because it, it was, yes, my dad, passing away but also my mother lived through war she lived through the Biafra war in Nigeria where she had to eat snakes to survive and all sorts of really hard things and sometimes when she talks about these experiences it almost feels as though she's talking about something that happened to somebody else and I know that that happens to victims of trauma where they the way they deal with it is they sort of separate themselves from the event so much so that you know it almost feels like they're talking about something that happened to you know, a distant cousin or something. Um, And so I, you know, I would like to see my mom 
you know, even now, 30 years later, sort of deal with it because, you know, she really hasn't. Um, in my later years, I did actually end up speaking to someone and I'm so happy that I did. Mm. Yeah. Oh, 866-801-8255. Go ahead, Selena. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's, you know, I know we've talked about grief and stuff like that, but you, you're there. There's got to have been a point when you went through all this and you and your brother, and you know, that you're all realize like damn we are really successful like we we are crushing it right now like of course you're dealing with this grief you're dealing with this pain of this loss and your mother as well and everything you're going through all these challenges can you tell me about that moment where you're like damn i'm awesome <laughs> you know i think that um i think that the way it was at least in my family it wasn't so much expressed as my gosh, damn, we're so awesome. But it was this realization that like we have and we owe our mother so much gratitude. Yeah. That's probably the bigger thing for us because like, you know, my mom was so strict and it's kind of hard. I mean, you know, you said that your parents were immigrants, um, Sina, and so you know what that's like when you have strict immigrant parents. And sometimes it's really difficult. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I write about in the book is how when I was 13 years old, she would take me to visit Oxford University. You know, Oxford is obviously Britain's version of Harvard, Yale and Princeton. And I, as a 13 year old, I had, I had no idea why Oxford University was a big deal. I couldn't, I could barely even pronounce it. Didn't know why it was important, but she would just take me there just so that I could see and absorb, you know, this sort of very prestigious institution that had educated so many of the world's decision makers. And um, it got where, rebelled or if I had stayed out late or whatever, rather than punishing me or yelling or grounding me, she would actually take me back to visit Oxford to show me something better to aspire to. She really wanted to plant that seed early that this was somewhere that I could actually go to. And one of the hardest things, probably the, the hardest thing that she did in terms of the toughest and the most, I would say, kind of aggressive, was um, when it came time to apply, my mother had those sort of parent-teacher conferences or whatever. And my teachers told her, yes, your child is, you know, certainly smart and certainly able, very capable, but she's not Oxford material. Like your child is sort of an AB student and that's great. Here are some other universities she should apply to, but Oxford requires genius status, a higher level that your daughter really isn't. Um, she's not there. No, yet. they did it. They did <laughs> not say that to your mother. No, they did not. Oh my gosh. So my mom came home and she was just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I, this was, I must've been about 16 years old, maybe 16 and a half. And she was like, my gosh, your teachers basically don't think that you can apply to Oxford. I'm going to, don't worry. I'm going to find a way. <laughs> and so she went upstairs to her bedroom and she paced her bedroom and she just thought to herself, what can I do? What can I do to guarantee that my daughter is going to go to Oxford University? How can I make sure that my child is going to go to, you know, one of the most prestigious universities in the world? Because she believed that Oxford was the ticket to a better life. So help her God, you know? So she came to my bedroom and she said, I've got it. I've got it. And I was like, what? She's like, I, I, I know exactly what to do to guarantee that you are going to go to Oxford University. And I was like, okay, let's hear it. And she basically decided that she was going to ban me from watching any television whatsoever until I had an actual Oxford acceptance letter in hand. Oh, and, um, wait, 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 I, let's talk wait, about this, on. mom. Yeah, let's not do anything wait. drastic. So her, her, her solution was to punish you? 
it was to basically, she believed that, um, you know, she had this whole philosophy that people who go to Oxford, I mean, she would say this, the people who go to Oxford and Cambridge and whatever, Harvard, Yale, you know, she just didn't believe that. She didn't fall for the idea that those people were geniuses. She just believed it was all about using your time in the most effective way possible. And so she decided that she was going to create an environment where basically I had nothing else to do but study. You have to remember that England is a very, um, I'm sure you both know this, that England has, a, it's a very strict class system. Okay. And so Social mobility in England is very difficult. Moving, you're born, you know, in a certain, to a certain sort of socioeconomic class, it's very difficult to move up. One of, it's not, it's not like America where, you know, for the, I mean, obviously there are major exceptions and this, you know, there's a lot of problems here, but for the most part, I think the difference with England is that moving up and sort of being born in, in one circumstance and then suddenly doing really well, is I think a lot harder than in America, in my humble opinion. And so, um, you know, one of the ways in which you can sort of catapult is by going to a university like Oxford or Cambridge um, because of the class system. And so um, my mother decided that if she could just make sure that I spent my spare time effectively, it would be a small price to pay for the kind of life that I would eventually have later in life. And so, you know, I didn't get into Oxford because I'm a genius. I didn't get into Oxford because I'm the smartest person. I got into Oxford because my mother created an environment where I had nothing else to do but study. That's All right, so why. what TV shows did you have to give up? <laughs> Fresh <laughs> Prince of Bel-Air. That was oh, the- <laughs> We had um, England is a little (laughs) bit behind. So we had reruns. I'm sure like all the episodes would have been shown in America, like, you know, beforehand. But we had like reruns of the Fresh Prince of Belair and Moesha at the time. This was like the late 90s. And um, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't watch. I couldn't watch those anymore. And um, at the time, I was sort of really uh, taken aback by this. And I spent all my time on the phone. And so I basically you know, replaced one distraction for another, no television, fine. I'm going to spend all my time on the phone, talking to boys, talking to my friends, talking to neighbors. And um, she was like, okay, I've got a solution for this. And so in England at the time, you could get these things called residential pay phones. You know, people think of a pay phone as a massive sort of thing, you know, on on a busy street, like a booth, but you could get these small sort of residential pay phones. She bought one, they're not expensive. You find them in like doctor's offices in England and they look like a regular landline, but they have a slot on one side for coins. She bought one, brought it home and said, you can use the phone as much as you want, but from this moment forward, you're gonna have to pay for it yourself. So very quickly with no television, no phone, I rebelled at the beginning. I would go for walks, I would do anything but study, but eventually because of the environment and having nothing else to do but study, I began to read more. And sooner or later, within a few months, I actually became a straight A student, not just a straight A student, but um, my grades were so good that in certain practice exams, I was getting every answer correct. Because obviously, to, once you have nothing to do but study, it's not just about studying for your schoolwork, it's also, you end up reading around your subjects. I mean, that's certainly what you have to do to go to a university like Oxford. And um, as much as I resented her, when I got that acceptance letter, I was so emotional because I knew I owed it all to her. Mm. And that small price to pay of like boredom for two and a half years, 
I would happily give it up again for the life that I had now. It completely changed my life. And I owe my mother everything. If now, we okay. had politicians that problem solved as fast as your mother, <laughs> everything would be solved in this. Look, look, wow. you're on the phone too much. Boom. You got to pay for the phone. We can't. We can't do anything. In this country. Well, there's also a level of fear that I think come from. Uh, yeah, uh, created. True. Uh, do you raise and we're talking with Zane Asher and you can follow her at Z-A-I-N Asher S-A-S-H-E-R Asher Zane Asher on the Twitters. Uh, her book is, of course, where the children take us. Are you using those same methods with your children? Do you plan on do that? Do you plan on doing um, that? My children are so young right now. My oldest is three and um, my youngest is, is 10 months. So I haven't really implemented anything. <laughs> There's no like eight hour rule right now. And you know, they don't, they don't really watch TV. Um, so I think that for me, that the sort of tricky thing is that my kids are born at a very different time. Like when I was growing up, there was just television and phone, that's it. Now there's YouTube, there's Instagram, there's Twitter, there is, I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm probably not listing, I'm too old to list the rest of them, but there's so much that um, I wonder what my mother would do if she was raising kids in today's environment. So I think I have a lot of time to think about it. I also think that, you know, my mother was raising her children under very, very di different circumstances. You know, our childhood was all about survival. My mom had gone through grief. And raising three, then actually four, after my sister was born, four black children in not the greatest of neighborhoods, you know, especially when you're raising black men, the temptations are different when it comes to what's out there in the streets and, and obviously no father figure. So my mother had to go to a different level um, that I want, I don't necessarily know if you know, she was raising kids. Um, if she was, you know, a wealthy woman who was raising four kids and, you know, had a husband and wasn't a single mother, would she really need to do all that? I don't think so. It's so desperate. You're a desperate situation. So you, you do desperate things. This book is amazing. You know, it was a lot made of the, the Tiger Mom book that came out uh, a bunch of years ago. Um, but as I mentioned, I think this, this is a great blueprint, even for today, especially with all of the challenges that we have to just refocus around the children and where the children take us is the book. Zane Asher is the art artist. I want to call you an artist, but you're not, you're, you're more than that. You're <laughs> author, author. And when can we see you on CNN? When, when are you on? Yeah. So I'm on a CNN international. Um, so if you have that on your on your cable um, and it's 12 noon every day. My show is One World with Zane Asher. Ah, that's amazing. Thank you so well, much. Uh, we'd love you. to keep having this conversation and you can come back anytime, Zane. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Sheena. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.